0: Um, welcome to everybody, I, I want to uh, I guess highlight that this is the last lesson in a series of lessons as we've walked through the book of Ephesians together and uh, I don't want to scare you but, but we're finishing off as Paul finishes his letter with the focus on warfare and uh, I promise not to get too gory or anything but um, it is the theme that we're going to be moving towards throughout this lesson this morning. But because it's the last of our um, consideration, if you will, of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, I want to just take a moment and make a few connections. Paul, you'll remember, as he describes himself, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the occasion of the writing of this letter, almost certainly, uh, was from... Roman imprisonment, which kind of involved both arriving in Rome, being thrown into chains, etc, but then we are told that what seems to be more like a house arrest, after a while the Roman guards relaxed and Jesus rather Paul was allowed more freedom, even to receive guests, even to receive fellow workers, etc. But I want to point out that throughout his experience, whether in chains or enjoying the relative freedom of house arrest, there was always the presence of the Roman guard. And that will become apparent if you're not making connections yet. That will become apparent in, in a moment. Um, we're, we're told that, uh, by scholars that, that this is more likely to be a circular letter then a letter that was written to a specific church to address specific problems. classic example of that would be Paul's correspondence with the church at Corinth. The nature of the letter that we know as the letter to the Ephesians is probably sent throughout Asia Minor, and, but ended up being attached to the name Ephesus because Ephesus was the capital, it was the major centre in Asia Minor at the time. Many have argued that in Colossians chapter 4 where Paul talks to the church at Colossae and says, you take the letter that you've received from me and you share it and take the letter that that I sent to the Laodiceans and you read that too. Many have suggested, I think with with some credibility, that what Paul refers to as the the letter to Laodicea there was probably what we know as the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus. A circular letter. And the significance of that is this unlike a letter that's written to a specific church addressing specific issues. And there's much to be learned from from those letters. But this one is a general letter addressing all churches. And so in a very direct way, as we listen to the message of the letter to the Ephesians, we need to be open as if this is Paul writing to us as a church of, of the living God. And so... Um, I want to sort of make a brief outline, chapters 1 through 3, and I've selected here as representative, uh, chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, not our own handiwork. Paul emphasises the wonders of God's goodness toward us and that those 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 things, those blessings are all summed up in Christ. One simple statement that Paul uses over and over again, that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. It's all God's doing. It's all God's initiative. How good is God? And then, rather conveniently, because we've divided it into six chapters, the first half focusing upon what God has done. The second half, chapters four through six, as, as has been pointed out, with that little connecting term, therefore, because God has done all this, therefore, this flows, this follows. And so here, again, using chapter four and verse 24 as the, the summative statement, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6 and verse 9, are what I would describe as examples of what the true righteousness and holiness should look like. You Remember uh, chapter 4, we begin with the seven ones, for example. The call to, as a body of Christ, to be unified around those seven ones. The call to recognise that, that within the church we are called to be holy as God is holy. And so we're concerned about issues of truth-telling. We're concerned about issues of integrity and service to, 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 to one another as ambassadors of Christ, etc., We're concerned in our household relationships, whether it's between husbands and wives, between parents and children, even between masters and slaves or employers and employees today, I guess, if you you will. That that we are concerned that, that, that what God has done for us in Christ Jesus has ramifications for every aspect of our life. And I want to suggest to you that that we need to understand that this is permeated by the issue of relationship. Every conceivable relationship that we have is affected by our relationship with God, which is based upon what God has accomplished for us in and through Christ. And now, which is going to be the focus of our lesson this morning, in the latter part of chapter 6, Paul goes on to tell us the how. It's all very well to have a clear picture of the what. This is what it ought to look like. And that's necessary, to have a picture of the goal towards which we are working, to have a clear image of where we're going and why we're going and, and how we've gotten there. But the issue of how do we lay hold of that? How do we bridge that gap from where we are to where we want to be, where we ought to be? And that's going to be the focus of this lesson today. I want to just, before leaving this, um, point out uh, Acts chapter 28 and verse 16. Luke gives us a little snippet of Paul's experience. In Rome, as he arrives there as a prisoner, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. This is a, a, an allusion to what I've described as, as house arrest, as it were. And Paul himself in Philippians, again, another letter written in the same context from uh, his imprisonment in Rome. What has happened to me has advanced the gospel throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else. Now, this is a very interesting insight that Paul gives us here. Here is Paul, whether he's in chains or whether he's enjoying that relative freedom of house arrest. There's always the presence of at least one Roman guard. And Paul sees that as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And you kind of wonder, what was it like for those Roman guards? Did they look for... Did they think, well, I get to take my turn in conversing with this Apostle Paul. He talks about all this stuff. Some might think it's pretty weird stuff. Some might think this is wonderful stuff, life-changing stuff. Others might think, oh, man, I've got to go and listen to this guy yabba, yabba, yabba again. Regardless of what their attitudes might have been, Paul grasped this. He saw it as an opportunity to further the gospel Picture that in mind as the context from which Paul is writing these words. Now, I warned you about the warfare thing, and I, and I want to, um, I guess, take a moment to highlight what it's not. Christianity particularly become associated with violence, warfare, warmongering. And of course, one of the key pictures as this image is presented has been found in the era of the Crusades, the Holy Wars. Historians estimate that between one to nine million died in the Crusades, covering the period from about 1095 to 1291 AD, a period of about 200 years. Uh, that period captures, I think, about the, uh, the first to the third crusade, which was the main, the bulk of the crusades. There were two or three others on a minor scale. And so as we look at that, we can understand why people might think, oh, Christianity. And of course, the foe in this context, the Muslims, largely seen, I guess, in simplistic terms, as a fight over Jerusalem. Who's going to get to keep the holy city? A lot of intriguing politics uh, around the Crusades and we don't have time to sort of explore that. I want to use this though as an introduction into this point. On the 11th of September 2001, so we're moving to very recent times and there's not a person in this room that doesn't recognise the ramifications of 9-11, religious terrorism struck into the heart and the consciousness of the Western world and out of that has flowed the idea that yes, yes, Religion is the problem with the world. I want to point out, and our Sunday nighters might recognise a bit of overlap with with what we've talked about recently on Sunday night, even if the recent claims by people like Sam Harris, who wrote a book called The End of Faith, Religion, Terror and the Future of Reason, uh, notice the dates here, 2004, and uh, Hitchens' uh, God is Not Great book in 2007. This is off the back of 9-11, events that occurred in 2001. The claim that religion is the greatest source of violence in history were true. Even if that claim were true, it would not undermine the integrity of Jesus or Christianity. It would simply highlight the hypocrisy of anyone who promotes and or practices violence in the name of the Christ who explicitly teaches the disciples to love their neighbours, even their enemies. And I want to, to emphasise that. To whatever degree people may, in the name of Christianity, and I'm speaking specifically of Christianity here, promote violence of any level, any scale. They are not representing Jesus Christ. What they are betraying is their hypocrisy or at the very least their total misunderstanding of Messiah and his teaching. I notice here that Mahatma Gandhi And Gandhi, of course, is is probably still well-known to us today because of his activism in bringing independence for the nation of India, delivering them from British rule. It is a first-class human tragedy that people of the earth who claim to believe in the message of Jesus, whom they describe as the Prince of Peace, show little of that belief in actual practice that is a fair criticism and we need to feel the sting of that and we need to recognize that that must not be us we can't control what happens out there but we can responsibility for what happens here in our midst as a family of God and that we can resolve to say we will not be hypocrites. We will not betray the teaching of Christ and pursue some other agenda and use him as an excuse. We will act with integrity and humility in expressing our true allegiance to Christ by pursuing his teaching by being salt and light in the world. The fact is, of course, the claims of Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and and others, uh, you'll notice a common denominator there, of course, all disciples of the what's been dubbed as the New Atheist Movement, militant in their opposition to God, Christianity in particular, the reality is, despite their claims, is that religion has not caused more bloodshed than anything else in history. And just one line of evidence to support that statement. In their massive three-volume encyclopedia of wars, researchers Charles Phillips and Alan Axelrod showed that of the 1,763 wars they chronicled over the last five millennia, that's 5,000 years, only 123, less than 7%, were motivated by religion. And religion, of course, played no part in the two greatest blood blasts in recent history, World War I with 16.5 million dead and World War II with 60 to 80 million perishing Further, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, 66 million were killed by Lenin, Stalin and Khrushchev of communist Russia. Between 32 million and 62 million were killed in China under communist regimes since 1949. And a third of the 8 million Khmers, 2.7 million people, were killed between 1975 and 1979 under the communist Khmer Rouge. All I want to point out is that expressions of communism, which of course is built upon the foundation of atheism, have killed many, many more people in recent history than Christianity or I would gather that any other religion. Very often these urban myths get momentum And are perpetuated, but when you step back and consider the facts, the story often is quite, is quite different. But that's not the kind of warfare I want to talk about this morning. According to Paul, we are engaged in a war. An ancient war that reached its climax in the incarnation and crucifixion of Christ. A war which is now won, even though fierce battles and skirmishes Continue. So we read in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I have a confession to make as a critic of all of those online streaming stuff, and wife, I'll, I'll I'll bring you in on it too. Donet and I have become tragic devotees of Stranger Things. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's Stranger Things? Well, don't go there. <laughs> don't go there unless you're prepared to give up the next couple of weeks of your evenings slogging through, what was it, season four, eagerly waiting for season five. There's something there's something addictive about the story, the, the upside down, the other world. And of course, only a decade or two ago, the Matrix burst on the scene, which is fundamentally about the same sort of thing, this idea of an alternative, a parallel universe, if you will, a parallel world, a dark world that reaches into our world. And I want to suggest to you that this is an example of an intuition of the reality of our world, the real world, not just the world of fiction, not just the world of imagination. Many philosophers would argue it's impossible to imagine something that's, that's, that's entirely new. The best we can do is to is to take things we know and combine them in novel ways, but to invent something that doesn't exist that's beyond our experience is beyond our capacity. And I want to suggest that there's probably a lot of truth in that. That these stories even if we go back to the ancient myths of, say, the Greeks and the Greek gods, the pantheons, etc., that there is some intuitive awareness in humanity. Of a dark side. And as Christians, I want to suggest to you, we ought not to be surprised about this. In Genesis 3, we're confronted with this phenomenon of talking serpents on a mountaintop garden. I mean, there's something strange about that. There is something supernatural about that. Something beyond the natural world. A classic example. Second Kings chapter six tells a narrative. Uh, Elisha and his servant. The Assyrians are there. Syrians, I think. Sorry, and 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 Elisha's servant panics. Don't be afraid. The prophet answers. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What do you mean those who are with us? It's just you and I, Elisha, and it's all of them. No. Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That alternative reality was present there. Hidden. Hidden. Hidden from human eyes, but the reality was there. Similarly, Daniel, Gabriel and Michael versus the princes of Persia and Greece, and the context seems to suggest that this is talking about some sort of a a spiritual battle that's happening behind the scenes that we're not privy to beyond the little snippets that we get in scripture, but the reality of those events These things are happening and these things reach into our world and impact us here. The classic example, Mark chapter 3, the teaching teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, speaking of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. I want you to notice two things. Well, three things. Notice that this is Jesus speaking. This is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he says there are alternative spiritual realities. He speaks here of the devil, the adversary, Satan, the accuser, and his demons. In the context... Jesus' critics are saying, are dismissing his, his casting out of these demons. His exorcisms are saying, well, he's doing that by the power of the devil. And we notice one thing that's important to notice. They didn't or couldn't deny the reality of what was going on. The best that they could do was to discredit Jesus' actions by crediting it to the devil, Beelzebub. There is no doubt in anybody's mind here that these spiritual realities behind the scenes are a reality and that they're dipping into the present world. Notice too, Jesus points out the flaw in their logic. If what you say is true, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then Beelzebub's fighting against himself. And on that point of logic, he dismisses their criticism. But notice what he says then in verse 27 to describe what's happening, to explain how and why Jesus is casting out the servants of Beelzebub. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. This is war, says Jesus. And these demons that are being cast out are casualties of war. And that's exactly why I have come, says Jesus. That's exactly what I'm doing. Now to my point, why have I laboured this? Well, we need to be reminded of these things in the Western world because we forget. Because the things that we've been talking about have been so minimised or even discarded in the modern Western way of thinking, that the church has been affected by this. And we forget of such realities. If you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, you need to be. You need to be. Uh, I, I know some prominent theologians have C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters on their list of not just top books to read, top books to read at least once a year. To go back and revisit at least on a yearly basis. And if you're not familiar, it's, 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 I might use the word genius. As he has screw tape, the chief demon and his apprentice, Wormwood, And the whole narrative is built around the discussion between the master and his apprentice and how the apprentice has been assigned to what's referred to as the patient, a human being. And Wormwood's job is to be sure that the patient, the human being, does not serve the enemy, which of course is his way of describing God, that he'll be kept alienated from the enemy, through all of these various means and tricks that unfold throughout the book. It's a good read. From a Christian point of view, I would want to say, suggest at least that it is a must read. From section 7, my dear Wormwood, I wonder, you should ask me, whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, the devil himself. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and sceptics. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Now we as Christians need to beware, lest we let some sort of caricature of what Paul describes as things happening in the spiritual realm to become effectively Unreal. It's interesting, Peter, the apostle, his language, you notice, when he talks about things that happen in the spiritual realm, be alert and of sober mind. And I guess that's what I want to say, what I want to remind us of this morning. We need to be alert and sober minded. We need not to be swayed by the world's materialist presuppositions of oh, there's really no, no supernatural realities. There's nothing, nothing to be seen in any spiritual realm. That's just, well, stranger things. Oh. The truth is, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour him. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, which is what we're going to go on in a moment and look at how Paul describes that and the armour that God gives us to stand, to resist in the faith. But notice the way he describes the devil, your enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, less entertaining than things like Stranger Things are the sort of documentaries that you see, things like African wildlife and stuff. And we sort of everybody's seen it, I'm sure. And you, and you sort of the cameraman, probably with like strong lenses, from a from a safe distance, looking at a, at a at a, a pride of lions on the prowl. Careful to. Stay upwind so that, so that their descent, their prey doesn't catch a whiff of their scent. Stealthily moving through the grasses. Until they can get so close within jumping range. And you know what? Rather inconveniently, the lion doesn't start roaring when it's a hundred metres away. So we have time to run away. The lion waits until he's right there. He can almost taste the prey. And then he roars like a lion. And the prey is frozen with fear. And precisely at that point, it's too late. You're a goner. That's Peter's point. Be alert and be sober, lest the enemy get so close that the last thing you remember is the roar of the lion as he pounces. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armour of God. Take your stand. Trials and temptations will come, notice. Stand firm. And you'll finish this section, stay alert. Pray, pray, pray. I'm sure everybody is familiar with the Roman soldier and his armour. As the Apostle Paul again remember in his imprisonment in Rome, whether in chains or later under house arrest, always surrounded by Roman guards, this was front of mind for him. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Three states to attain and remain in. The first truth, the standard by which reality is measured. And of course, we think of God Is the ultimate reality. We're reminded of Jesus' words in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32: You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. But it's only the truth that is known. Uh, Hiru Unada. Japanese soldier fighting in the Philippines. When peace was declared, he thought it was an enemy trick. And so he ignored he ignored the truce and he kept carrying on with his private battle. From 1945 to 1974, he kept hiding in really quite difficult, atrocious conditions in a hostile Philippine jungle I believe something in the order of 20 souls he killed he thought as being a patriot he thought as as fighting for his country in fact he was a peacetime murderer he didn't know the truth sometime later A hero, a Japanese hero goes and he's flown into the jungle to call Hiru out. Hiru, lay down your arms. The war is over. It's been over for 20 years. Come out. Come out. He was held captive by his ignorance or his rejection of the truth. Once he accepted the truth, my understanding is, he he was flown back home to Japan, he was forgiven, and he was received with a hero's welcome. But he could have been enjoying the peace and prosperity of post-World War II Japan for 20 years had he only accepted the truth The breastplate of righteousness, living the truth, pursuing God's way of holiness and love, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's interesting. The shoes of soldiers, the Roman soldiers. They were cutting edge in terms of technology. You might think, well, how could how you know I guess we think of Nike and whatnot we can understand the technology of the importance of having good shoes? Helps you jump a bit higher, Isaac, which you leap for those slam dunks. Those of us that are less coordinated and shorter can only dream of that sort of thing. The technology of Roman sandals that was issued to the soldiers was very significant. Tough leather. Tough leather. That they could traverse all sorts of terrain. Uh, the enemy oftentimes apparently, you know, we hear about Um, uh, the sort of explosive devices that that are buried in the ground and if you tread on one or drive over one you get blown to pieces well in these times they used to put sharpened sticks in the ground and many of the armies, believe it or not, used to travel barefooted and that's not a good thing for an army to walk into a field of sharp sticks the Romans were smarter than that They made sure all the soldiers were equipped with these sandals that had these heavy, heavy leather soles to protect them. But more than that, it gets really clever. they hammered nails through it, kind of like what had the effect that what we think of studs in, in football shoes, which of course gives you grip, which is important when you're marching. It's important when you're standing to fight that you don't lose your balance. And I guess if it came to it, it's important to help you make a timely retreat to come back and fight another day, perhaps. These are the images that Paul is putting before the minds of the Christians. A reminder reminded of the Beatitudes. Here, the elements of truth and righteousness and readiness. When everything is wrong, but you're still able to sing God's praises. That's the depth of peace, blessedness that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, that regardless of everything that might be going out there, which may be crazy, because of your trust in God, your commitment to truth and righteousness and your readiness to serve, your allegiance you maintain that stability. You're anchored there. You enjoy shalom, that peace. Three things also to take up, he says, the shield of faith that is trusting God and obeying God, protection against the fiery darts of the evil one. And that graphic of that Roman soldier there is quite deliberate because it highlights... The shield that they wore, no piddly little disc thing. It was it was big, because they needed it to be able to fend off lances, and not just arrows, but fiery arrows. My understanding is that they were they were made of a, a, a timber frame and several layers of, of tough animal hide stretched over it, so that it could absorb the sort of Punishment it would receive in battle, close up and also from a distance. A reminder of James's language in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The helmet of salvation. And I think key here is the idea of hope that we have in God. Not pie in the sky, wishful thinking. The real expectation that we have. Described as hope in so much as it's not fully realised now. But it will be. According to God's promises. When the Lord returns. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, We're reminded of Jesus' confrontation with the devil. It is written, it is written, it is written. And of course, no doubt you've often heard it pointed out, this is the only offensive weapon that's provided. The rest is armour, the armour that God provides that we are to take up, take up the whole armour of God. God provides for us the means by which we can be ready for the battle. But it's not the sort of battle that we witnessed in the Crusades. It's the sort of battle that equips us to deal with the spiritual enemy, the unseen world. The word of God is the only weapon that we need. Now, question. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Karen Matthews, Soldier of Christ. Yeah, it looks good, doesn't it? It looks it looks good. Mitchell Tanner, Soldier of Christ. And because I mean, we don't have the capacity to run through everybody. Karen and Mitch, a representative. But each one of us could picture ourselves in those images as soldiers of Christ. And so Paul concludes, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything. Tychicus probably the one who's delivering the messenger who's running around delivering the letter. So that you also may know that I how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Prayer. I heard a recent definition that I think is really important. Earthly permission for heavenly Intervention. You know, oftentimes we've talked about how our response to God, our obedience to God, it is effective. Precisely because in our obedience, in our surrender to God, in our submission to the Spirit of God, we are allowing God to work upon us, um, cooperation, if you will, synergy, if you will. God is not coercive. He doesn't force himself. He eagerly waits and even hopes that we will turn to him and invite him. And oh, he's eager to accept that invitation, but he will not act without that invitation. It's precisely the same principle with prayer. When we pray to God, we are giving earthly permission for heavenly intervention. And Paul emphasises this and we need to hear the emphasis and we need to rise above the, yeah, 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 prayer will take priority sometime. It's precisely, I would argue, because we become seduced by the Western world's materialism that we we come to doubt the reality of spiritual things. What good does prayer do, for goodness sake? Increasingly, if you listen, increasingly you will hear that criticism. Our prayers to God. Oh, don't bother us with prayers. Do something. Well, I want to tell you, by all means, act. Act but let your actions be bathed in prayer. Prayer to our Heavenly Father in the heavenlies, in that spiritual realm. We can do that with confidence because that's real. Finally, you'll notice Paul's emphasis again and again in his letters and so it is here as he concludes his letter to the Ephesians, probably to the Laodiceans and probably any number of other churches, at least in Asia Minor. We're all in this together. Notice how these Roman soldiers are arrayed, fully armoured, as Paul describes, but gathered together in community. And notice as each one has the other's back. That's a wonderful image of the church and that's the image I want to suggest to you that Paul chooses to conclude his letter to the Ephesians, his letter to us as a church of God.